We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. So if you're tuning into this podcast, you're alive, I would presume, which means you've lived through all your toughest days so far. You've survived your toughest days. You've had some good ones, but you have survived your toughest days, which makes you mentally tough. But are you as mentally tough as you can possibly be? Are you prepared to face tough days ahead? You can survive them, but can you thrive in them? Author Amy Morin, who is a therapist, believes that you can not only survive, but thrive. And she ought to know. She went through the death of her mother, which was sudden, then the death of her young husband, 26-year-old, had a heart attack, and then she was facing another in-law's cancer diagnosis. And she was in a dark place. And she sat down and wrote a list of the 13 things. She didn't start with the number 13 in mind. She just wrote a list of things that mentally tough people don't do, things they don't do, not what they do, but what they don't do. And it helped her and it went viral. And now she's got six books and her most recent is about the 13 things mentally tough couples don't do. She's a fascinating person and her books are so worth reading. And we're going to get into it with her next. Welcome to the Michelle Tafoya podcast. Amy Morin, thank you for joining us. I got to ask, why the number 13? <laughs> Good question. So there was no magic meant to be in the number. I had written a letter to myself on one of the darkest days of my life about what mentally strong people don't do. When I was done, I just happened to have 13 on the list and decided to publish the list after I decided this helps me. Maybe it would help somebody else. I think the number 13 inspired some mystery or intrigue helped it get shared, got me 50 million views. And it's one of the reasons why I still get to talk about mental strength today. It's uh, so there's no uh, homage to Taylor Swift here or anything like that. There was not. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I am so intrigued by this, the the whole, the whole way that this started. When people read the introduction to your book, 13 things mentally strong couples don't do. This is one of a number of books that you've written about mental toughness, really. So, but let's start with mental toughness. I think when people think of the mind, they think of emotions, they think of psychology, they think of mentality. How do you separate mental toughness from all the other sort of parts of the heart, soul, brain, mind, and and, and pinpoint what the mental part is? So when I talk about the mental part, I talk about really the, the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. They're all part of that. So it's about what you think. We know that We have something like 60,000 thoughts a day. A lot of those thoughts aren't necessarily even true. So part of building mental strength is about recognizing your brain lies to you. You don't have to believe all of your self-doubt. Your brain makes a lot of negative predictions that probably will never come true, but you don't have to believe those things. And then the emotional part is knowing, yeah, I have a lot of control over my emotions. 
if I am sad, I don't have to stay stuck there. And part of being sad is honoring something that you've lost. So it's healthy to, to feel those uncomfortable feelings, but you don't have to stay stuck in them when they aren't serving you well. And then the behavioral component is knowing I can do something even though I don't feel like it. I can push myself to go to the gym on a day when I feel kind of tired, or I can get up and take some kind of action, even though maybe it's a little anxiety provoking. Maybe that's the solution is to get up and go do that thing anyway. So when you combine those three things, you have mental strength, your thoughts, your feelings, and your behavior. Okay. That, that clarifies a lot for, for me. I want to go to that dark day when you wrote yourself that list. What happened to make you sit down and start putting these thoughts on a, on a page? Well, I was a therapist and about a year into my work as a therapist, my mom passed away suddenly and unexpectedly. She had a brain aneurysm and it really rocked my world to lose her in such a sudden and unexpected way. And it really intrigued me to learn more about mental strength, not just from a therapist standpoint, but from my own personal journey. And then when I was 26, it was the three year anniversary, three years to the day that my mom died. My 26 year old husband died of a heart attack. And I never even knew it was possible that I have a heart attack at age 26, but I woke up and now I'm a widow and I don't have my mom. And one of the things I had learned as a therapist was it wasn't always about what people did that helped them get through tough times. Sometimes it was more about what they didn't do. And so even though I was hopefully teaching people in my therapy office uh, skills and strategies that would work for them, I felt like I was able to learn from them too. And I would see some people who had been through incredibly tough times in life and they were still hopeful and happy people who were optimistic. And it was because they didn't have certain bad habits. And then I worked on myself for years and felt like, all right, how do I get through these tough times? And one of the things I had to do was pick up a side hustle. I didn't make enough money as a therapist to keep my house. My husband had been the primary breadwinner. And the last thing I wanted to do was have to move. So I started writing articles just as a way to earn a little bit of money after work. And I got paid between 15 and $25 per article, but it was about the only thing I could do that I felt like I was able to do mentally. I couldn't get a second job or anything like that while I was grieving. But years later, I felt like life was starting to get better. I got remarried. I got a new house. I got a new job. And I thought, woohoo, this is chapter two. Like life's looking pretty good. And it was then that my father-in-law got diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I just remember thinking like, I just spent a whole decade grieving. The last thing I want to do is grieve anymore. But it wasn't like I had a choice. And it was then 7 a.m. one day when I was in a dark place, I wrote this letter to myself about what mentally strong people don't do. And like I said before, I never really intended on making it public. But because I found it so helpful, I hoped that maybe it would help one or two people. And 50 million people read it, including a literary agent who said you should write a book. And 10 years later, I have six books on the shelf and I still get to talk to people like you about mental strength. It's, it's incredibly cool. I mean, it's out of so much pain though. Um, and then that's where a lot of greatness comes. People sort of pursuing through their pain. Uh, is there something that mentally tough people have in common when you've either looked at these traits or looked at what people don't do? And, and certainly in your practice, are, are, are mentally tough people uh, differentiated in any other way that you can find sort of a common thread? One common thread would be their ability to accept bad things. And by acceptance, I don't mean like, hey, I'm a victim and these terrible things are going to happen to me, but kind of the opposite. They don't resist that it's happening. 
people who suffer the most in life tend to spend a lot of time thinking this isn't fair. It shouldn't have happened to me. I wish it wasn't happening. Why do these terrible things always happen to me? And they're just wishing that like life would suddenly change on a dime or that they could go back and rewind the clock. Whereas people that are mentally tough can say, okay, this happened or it's happening to me and challenge accepted. I'm going to rise to the occasion. I'm going to push back. I'm going to make this opportunity my best comeback. And they're able to start taking action uh, rather than just sit around and feel like now there's nothing I can do and I'm hopeless and I'm helpless. But you're convinced also that people can change. So if they aren't coming to the party with this ability to accept and understand that life isn't fair. And so you have to deal with the unfairness of it um, is kind of the way I look at it. But th that if they come to the table without those skills or tools, they can gain them, right? They can hone those, those abilities. Absolutely. Just like none of us are born physically strong. None of us are born mentally strong, but we can all exercise every single day. Just like you might work out your biceps or uh, your legs, you can say, yeah, I'm going to work out my, my mind too. There are tons of mental strength exercises and it's all about a choice. And sometimes people get mental strength and mental health confused. They'll say, well, I have depression, so I can't be mentally strong, but they're two very different things. It's like, you could have a physical health issue, like high blood pressure, but you could probably still go to the gym and work out to get physically strong. Same can be said that we all have strategies, things we can do and choices we can make every single day to grow mentally stronger, no matter what you're dealing with. I think that word choice is so important that you have agency in the bit that you and 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 I am saddened these days by people wanting to protect whether it's their children, their grandchildren, youth so much that they insulate them that they say oh I can't stand to see my baby hurt therefore I am going to insulate this child ins insulate this person from any it, that's not how you gain scar tissue which is absolutely essential to, to growth, to, to life, to resilience. Um, so how, how would you explain to maybe parents or grandparents why they do need to let kids get exposed to, to these uncomfortable situations? You're absolutely right. Like life is uncomfortable. You're going to go through hard times. And the best time to let your kid practice their skills is when they're under your roof and you can be there to coach them or pick them up if things don't go well, but then you're their guide. And the study I always go back to is they ask college students, were you ready for college? And like 95% of them said, oh, academically, absolutely, I was ready. But then 60% of them said, but I wasn't emotionally ready. And that was the one thing they wished adults had spent more time teaching them was emotional skills because they don't know how to deal with loneliness and frustration and sadness that, that they're dealing with once they're out of the house. So I think if we just looked at those things as opportunities to let our kids be uncomfortable when they're sad because they didn't get picked for the team or they got rejected, it's hard. It's hard to watch them deal with those things, but it's so important to give them those opportunities to practice. Absolutely. So the book uh, that, that uh, we're talking about specifically today is 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do. Do you, when you go into these and you have your 13, do you like have a favorite child? You know, do you have one particular chapter that you think, God, this is the, this is the, this is the money chapter. This is the one that people really need to know. Well, you know, sometimes when I'm writing it, I, I will expect it to be one chapter that resonates the most. And then people will all talk about a completely different chapter, which kind of surprises me sometimes. So 
They don't ignore their problems is chapter one. I think this is crucial. Um, if you, if you've got a problem in the marriage, I guess it's just easier to sweep it under the rug. Is that, is that kind of the thing here that it might be tougher to, to deal with it, but that's the right thing to do. Right. A lot of people will say, I don't want to bring it up today because I don't want to make today bad. But if you don't practice being uncomfortable today, it makes like the next week and next year and maybe the next five years really uncomfortable because problems don't go away on their own. They tend to grow and they get bigger and bigger. And that's when couples later become resentful and angry and even bitter with each other because nothing changed. But I see so many people who will say, well, we're having a good day, so I don't want to ruin the mood and I don't want to bring it up. Mm -hmm. Or my partner's in a bad mood, so it's not a good day to bring this up either. But there's never a perfect time to bring up those problems. Sometimes you just have to say, today's the day and I'm going to do it. The second chapter is they don't keep secrets. Um, yes, that, that's, <laughs> that would not be good. Uh, are there any secrets that are worth keeping besides, you know, I'm throwing you a surprise party. Are there any secrets that really you don't need to share? Well, it's important to differentiate between privacy and secrecy. There are a lot of things you can keep private. Might be your social media account is private or a conversation you have with your friend. You can keep that private too. You don't need to share everything, but secrets are those things that we try to avoid telling our partner because we don't want them to get mad or we don't want to hurt them or we don't want them to see us in a different light. And we're going through uh, a lot of hard work trying to make sure that those things don't come to light. Maybe it's something like how much you spent on that dress the other day, <laughs> or it's like, you know, you're having private conversations with your ex and you think that it's okay to keep that a secret too, because you don't want to harm their relationship. But those things really erode trust and they often come to light and they do damage relationships. Uh, I'm going to do a few more because I don't want to give away the whole book. There's, there's so many good, good topics to sink your teeth into they don't hesitate to set boundaries. I think this one is applicable in so many different kinds of relations, relationships, friendships, uh, work relationships, parent, uh, you know, parent kid relationships. So why do people hesitate to set boundaries and what's the, the upside of really setting them? Well, when it comes to relationships, we need boundaries with our partners, but then you as a couple also need boundaries with the outside world. So your boundary with your partner might be when I'm at work, I can't answer text messages six times a day. Or when I go for a walk with my friend or I go to see my therapist, I don't want you to ask me what I talked about or I'm not going to tell you what we discussed. Those would be boundaries you have in your relationship, but then boundaries that the two of you need against the outside world could be anything from our kids aren't sleeping in our bed to our mother-in-law's not going to stop over unexpectedly whenever she wants to, or we're not going to loan money to, to a friend who needs it. And just knowing like what rules do we need? But we often think that we're being rude by setting those guidelines, but really it's like a fence that's going to protect your relationship and we need them. And we need to be discussing what our boundaries are with our partners. And then also making sure that we are establishing those things with the outside world. Otherwise, your relationship will struggle to stand the test of time. How do you convince, whether it's a client or a reader, that boundaries aren't selfish? So it's really about, again, about protecting your inner peace and knowing that setting a boundary is a really kind thing to do. If I'm offending somebody and they never tell me like, hey, I don't like it when you do this, like 
that's going to interfere with our ability to form a healthy relationship. So it's a really kind thing to do is to be upfront with what your boundaries are and to teach people this is how we need to be treated. It, I, your backstory is so fascinating to me, and I want people to, to delve into the book on their own. So I don't want to give it all away, but there are so many amazing topics. But me just reading the introduction, I couldn't stop reading it because it, 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 it blew me away how much mental and emotional strength you have to endure everything you've endured. You, you kind of gave us the cursory look at it in the beginning. When you met your second husband, there are so many people out there who obviously your first husband died very young and people were telling you, oh, you're young, you'll find somebody. How much did you resist that in the beginning or how much did you think, no chance, this was the love of my life? Oh, I absolutely believe that there was no chance. I thought, you know, I'm how fortunate am I that I found love and I found it young and I got married young. And I was like, I'm just going to be really grateful for that. And I'll be okay with not dating anybody else. I, we had been foster parents and I said, I can be a single foster mom and uh, I really don't need anybody else in my life. I'll be okay. Thinking that, that that's how life would, would move on. And I really didn't want to, of course, I dealt with all sorts of those emotions too. Like it's disloyal to, to remarry, or I don't want anybody to think I'm comparing my second husband to my first husband. Even that word second husband just seems really uncomfortable to, to talk about even to this day. And figuring that out, how do I negotiate that? I was so close to my, my first husband's family and I thought, uh, how's this going to work if I get remarried? So it's complicated for so many reasons, emotionally, but practically. And also well, the grief that I was going through made everything really quite complicated for a long time. And so how did you know that it was going to be okay to, to take that step and, and accept a new relationship and accept a new marriage? It just felt right. Like it, I had always thought it would be incredibly awkward, like the age of 26 to be telling people, yeah, I'm a widow or to go on a date again or first date or anything like that. But when I met Steve, like it just felt absolutely right. And he knew my backstory. He was okay with it. He embraced it. He, he still hangs out with my first set of in-laws on a regular basis. And he's just an amazing human being who was able to fit into this strange life that I had already had for myself. And, and then we created a, a, our own kind of strange life. We now live on a sailboat in the Florida Keys. But it just felt, it felt like something, yeah, I could do this. And not only could I do it, but I really wanted to do it. That is a, a truly happy story it, through all the tumult and all the pain and the really, I mean, agonizing circumstances that you endured. Um, and it's, it's remarkable. And it's a remarkable statement about your, your first in-laws as well, that they've accepted Steve into the, into the fold uh, has that surprised you in any way? You know, I'm really not surprised because they're amazing people. And so I had ex expected, you know, like I knew they'd be open to trying to see if we could make this work. And they were. And I tried to to be kind and compassionate when I told them, hey, I'm dating somebody. And when I told them I was getting married and and they were completely like, no, you're our daughter. Like we embrace you as in our family. And if you, if you find somebody and you get married, like that's cool too. So over the years we've spent holidays with them, we visit them and uh, it's been again, even more than, than I could have dreamed of. It's amazing. And the books are really so worthwhile. I, 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 I recommend them because I do, I think, I think we are 
I hope we're growing in mental toughness as a society, but I feel in some ways like we we've been shy of it. We've been, like I said, people are being coddling. Um, if you are taking in a patient, uh, you know, a client, and you see that they are really sheltered, really haven't been exposed, really are afraid to be mentally tough. How do you get them over that cliff to being confident that they can be their own person? So a couple things it would just be taking it one very small step at a time. Somebody's terrified of something. The last thing you want to do is put them out there and, and terrify them even more. But we can often tolerate something on a scale of one to 10 at about a four. So let's do that one little step that would be a four. That would be kind of scary for you. And then let's take one more little step, one more little step. And you get them there that way. And to help people see if you want to be a mentally strong person, how do you get there? You act like one. So what would a mentally strong person be doing right now? Go do those things. And when you start changing your behavior, it changes the way you see yourself. It gives you more confidence. And you say, well, yeah, even though some of these emotions are uncomfortable, I can stand it and I can thrive because of it. Hey, you've lived through all your worst, worst days to this point. You can live through more of them. Amy Morin, 13 things mentally strong couples don't do. I kind of like that. You know, it's normally like, here's what you do. Here's the recipe for success. But here's what you don't do. Uh, and, and, and I commend you for starting with just yourself and then becoming this, you know, six-time author. And I'm sure there are going to be more. I think, to you know, in this wake of the Super Bowl, maybe 13 things mentally strong 49ers fans don't do after losing a heartbreaking Super Bowl. That might, you know, if you could turn that around quick, that could be a bestseller. I think you're right. <laughs> Amy, thank you so much for joining us. All the best with all of your books. 13 things mentally strong couples don't do. Check out the whole series because there's something for everyone. And even if you think you're already mentally strong. Uh, there's no way you can read one of these and go, you know what? I, you, you will improve. You will. Amy, thank you. Thank you, Michelle. And as always, I like to say at the end of every podcast, be brave and do good. Be brave would be, you know, look at yourself in the mirror and say, can I be mentally tough or be brave enough to say yes and do good. Go buy one of Amy's books and we'll see you next time. 